This podcast channel is about you, successful international entrepreneurs, successful expats, successful investors, sponsored by HCJ Contacts. Hello, good evening, everybody, and good morning to those that are in different time zones. Welcome to another live stream from HCJ.tax. Uh, for those, uh, I'm seeing some familiar names, and for those that it's their first time, we do these live streams every week or so. So feel free to visit HCJ.tax for events that may be of interest to you, and you're always welcome to join us. Everything is being recorded. And it will be archived and made available on our website, of course, as well as on YouTube and on Facebook and LinkedIn and iTunes, SoundCloud, and about 20 other podcast platforms. So if you have a friend or colleague that wanted to make it and couldn't make it, you can send them a link. You can ask them to just visit hcj.tax and everything is there. So... Because it's recorded, if you do not want your image to show up, all you need to do is keep that camera off. For those who sent their topics and questions in advance, thank you for doing that. We will address them in the order in which they were discussed. For those who want to ask a question, you can type in the box below for those on Zoom. You can just type in the chat box below for those on YouTube. You can just type below and I'll check every once in a while. So, so I think that's it. But of course, because I'm actually licensed by the U.S. Department of Treasury, I'm legally required to say that nothing we say here this evening, this morning, depending on where you are, should be construed as advice. You should not take tax advice from any stranger online or anywhere. What you need to do, of course, is to engage a professional who understands your situation inside out and is legally qualified to give advice. And then once, once under the cover of a legal engagement, then that, that's a different proposition. But right now, we're having a general conversation about general principles. You can even take it as entertainment, but it certainly is not meant to be legal advice. So without further ado, I'm gonna just jump right into the questions that you guys sent me by email and on WhatsApp and on Facebook. So the first question is somebody's asking about Spain versus Portugal, which is kind of popular right now. And I guess we get into more of that later on. So they have been searching for advice online. And unfortunately, they've been getting conflicting information. And they are, of course, super confused. The, the idea or the, the, the issue that they, this person uh, is trying to solve for, trying to resolve is which of those two jurisdictions should they base themselves in? Of course, everybody's situation is different and no one size fits all. And we, we strongly resist this idea that there's this one perfect destination for everybody. Now, there are many aspects, both quantitative and qualitative, that go into evaluating any given jurisdiction but for the purposes of our conversation this evening we're going to focus on the tax side of things only 
Now, in both jurisdictions, are uh, pretty welcoming uh, from an immigration perspective, obviously. They, I mean, they both have golden visas, which of course is a popular option right now. For those who do not want to go the golden visa route, uh, in Portugal is D2, D7, depending on whether you want to be earning income or whether you're going to be surviving on passive income streams. And in space, in Spain, sorry, the, the non-lucrative visa is super popular. And of course, the Beckham Law is the closest equivalent to the NHR, or the NHR is probably closer to the Beckham Law, because I think the Beckham Law came first. In that both tax regimes, they're both special regimes. Well, I guess I'll step back and say nothing about Europe screams tax efficiency. If you're looking for a low tax jurisdiction to base yourself, it ain't going to be in Europe. So Europe is probably synonymous with a higher tax, with the higher tax jurisdictions. So perhaps it's just part of the price of success. You know, you want to enjoy the benefits, the, the infrastructure that comes with being based in somewhere like Europe, then you'd be prepared to pay taxes in some way, shape or form, right? Uh, assuming that you do have some means, you do have some measure of wealth. With the NHR in Portugal, the non-habitual residents and the Beckham Law in Spain, it, these are carve-outs which allow you some sort of tax relief depending on your situation, it can work in your favor. Although there are circumstances where it may not work a minority of cases, but that probably is beyond the scope of what we're discussing right now. We've written about both of these tax systems on our website at hg.tax. We have over a thousand articles on international tax issues, but just to kind of get the main points in, in, in Portugal, uh, assuming that you do go NHR, you're looking, of course, at taxing your worldwide income, just like most other places in Europe. There's a 20% flat tax on salaries and business income, which is deemed to be high value added. Now we've had clients who did apply and there's, a, there's a, a list of what is deemed to be high value added. And I believe that it's updated periodically. So don't assume that you just gonna qualify. So again, you wanna uh, seek tax advice early on in the planning phase before you enter, just like this couple who, who've approached us. So you do get that 20% flat tax as opposed to up to 40, 40 something percent, which is the normal tax bracket for, for Portugal. Overseas real estate income may be tax-free, capital gains from overseas securities are taxable at 28%. So your investment portfolio back in the US would still be taxable. Overseas dividends, however, are tax-free normally. Please bear in mind that Portugal has a pretty comprehensive list of uh, blacklisted jurisdictions. So for those who have uh, offshore structures, basically any structure, or any jurisdiction that is attractive and low tax, chances are it's going to be in Portugal's blacklist. So that includes, you know, most parts of the, you know, many of the popular jurisdictions in the Caribbean and Dubai, uh, et cetera, places in Southeast Asia. So have a look at that as part of the tax planning exercise as well. That's highly recommended. It's everyone raves about how crypto friendly Portugal is, but of course it's quite nuanced. So you'd want to pay attention to that. Yes, the investment income is tax-free, but trading income is taxable. So just 
please be aware of that. There is no inheritance tax, but there's a stamp duty. So that's that's things in Portugal. Spain, on the other hand, their flat tax is not 20%, but around 20, I think it's 24%. Much of the foreign income is can be excluded, just like uh, in, in Portugal. Now, the Beckham law is a bit complicated and it's kind of annoying if you really think about it compared to other carve-outs like Ireland and uh, the UK have res non dom, you know, Belgium has a similar plan. I think Italy has something as well. Uh, I think Cyprus has something which allows you to live in the country. You pay taxes on income that arises locally, but your foreign income will be tax-free. So in order to qualify for this here, in Spain, you need a job contract from a Spanish company. And there are rules around how much, uh, how much ownership the directors can have and stuff like that. So, you know, you need to get a company formed or you need to connect with somebody who does offer that service. So it is not easy to qualify for the Beckham Law, is my point. Many regions have a wealth tax, but not every region does have a wealth tax. So you can pick a region that does not have one but there is an inheritance and a gift tax. So what does that mean? We, you know, um, people have come to us, especially after they've been burned elsewhere. And, and what we tend to say is let's trust the math. So if they give us their most recently filed return in whichever jurisdiction they are most, or they're coming from, whether that be the US or Canada, or the UK, Australia, we're able to run scenarios because we have a qualified tax team uh, in Spain and in Portugal that we work with. So if you look at HEG.tax, we've done live streams with, um, with Ricky, a tax attorney in, in, in Spain, and Augusto, a tax attorney in, in Lisbon, Portugal. And so we work with their teams and we run mock tax returns that would say, okay, if you were to move, uh, is let's say you're moving from the US, this is what your US tax return would look like hypothetically. And this is what your Spain or Portugal tax return will look like hypothetically. So we can just cut through the, the nuance and you can get, you can quantify what the impact of your move would be. So for some people, it'll be one jurisdiction, for some people it'll be the other, depending on your situation. Of course, there's more to it than just tax, but that's, that's, an, that's an approach that we, we're spending a lot of time doing and we believe it's highly recommended. Before you move somewhere, Run, you know, have a, a mock tax return done just to see what the impact of that big decision would be, especially for those who are sitting on a comfortable nest egg. So most of our clients do have uh, their earnings are if they're working still, their earnings are in the six figures or seven, and the net assets, the investable assets, in seven or eight figures. So these are not decisions that they take lightly. So it's. It's, it's definitely worth it. Thanks for asking that. I hope that helps. That's, that's a process that we would recommend and one size can't fit all. And we've, we've seen many scenarios in which someone thought that they were being tax efficient by moving from one jurisdiction to the other based on just headline info, forgetting that tax rules are quite nuanced. And when, it, and when you dig into it and when they finally suddenly realize that their tax bill is actually higher that you know they may have made a mistake so highly recommend get a mock tax return done next question okay someone's asking about 
crypto in Portugal. So yes, for the most part, there's no there's no sales tax or there's no capital gains tax. So if you're a crypto investor, it's fine. Uh, jurisdictions like Portugal will work in your favor. However, many of our clients and perhaps some others amongst you here are crypto traders. And the person who asked this question didn't specify whether they were an investor or a trader. So I'll give both. So if you are an investor, that is, and of course this, they did that, the distinction is, is quite nuanced as well. And it's defined in differently in different jurisdictions, but generally speaking, when it comes to Portugal and many other jurisdictions that we deal with, if it is that your strategy, just speaking very generally, is to buy and hold, you probably qualify as an, an investor, in which case you would be tax-free in Portugal, which is good. However, if you're a trader, so like you're actively buying and selling, and there are lots of short-term gains, and it's something that you're probably doing full-time. It's not something you know you have on the side yielding passive income. You're actively involved in buying and selling. We have clients that do dozens of trades per day, or, uh, or much more than that if you're an algo trader, an algorithmic trader, a high-frequency trader. That will definitely qualify as business income. So please keep, keep that in mind. Trading income is not tax-free. Investment income, when it comes to crypto, will be tax-free. I hope that answers your question. Next question on the list. <laughs> right, yeah. Choosing an international tax advisor. That is, that is obviously quite, quite difficult because, let's be honest, it's the Wild West. Yeah, when you look online, there are many people who are, they're well-meaning, they're trying to help. Some people are just trying to be super helpful and they, you know, they like helping people and they're giving their advice, but they're not qualified to do so, which may or may not be an issue. But what it means is that they, you know, I guess it's, it's, it's there's some built-in risks, like for us being, being part of a, a medium-sized firm. So I, I sit in Singapore and we have off, uh, offices, Moore's Roland, from as far north as Tokyo and Beijing down to Sydney, Melbourne, Australia. And we also have offices in, in Dubai, Portugal, UK. And we are held to account. We have personal liability, professional liability insurance. We are qualified and registered in jurisdictions in which we practice. So if we make a mistake, then we are held to account. We have skin in the game. It's not, it, yes, we're running a business. So we're hoping to make money. But if we mess up, we'll have a price to pay. So we're highly incentivized to be careful, right? Which is why, I guess, when you look online, many of those who are qualified in the international tax base, they, in terms of speaking and giving advice in a free manner, they don't do so as freely as someone who is not qualified because there'll be no consequences if they say something wrong. No, don't get me wrong. It's just being not having a qualification and not being registered or licensed doesn't mean that someone knows less because I, I you know, I follow some uh, international tax 
personalities online and some of them are not qualified and they are brilliant. They know their stuff, but sometimes they make mistakes just like any human being. And because many of them work alone, so they're not part of a governing body. They don't have uh, continuous professional education every year. They don't have people sitting in the office to bounce ideas off of and to discuss complex cases. And sometimes they're just trying to figure stuff out on their own. And that, that puts them at an a disadvantage. So anyway, I have five things that I would consider in deciding on an international tax advisor. So, you know, as I hinted, they need to be part of a team because it's, I think it's impossible that one person knows everything. I think it's just natural that an individual would have more experience in one jurisdiction or one area of practice over another. And when you look at larger firms, they, they are highly specialized. And it's not that they're inefficient or being silly. It means that, I mean, the U.S. tax code alone is 12 million words. So, you know, the people that specialize in different areas of federal tax, and then you have 50 states and, and DC. So you have different state tax rules. Now, one person cannot know all of that. And, you know, similarly in, in Singapore, yes, someone would know income tax, but what about corporate tax? What about indirect tax? These are areas of specialization. So my bottom line, first, someone needs to be part of a team. Secondly, the team should be qualified and exposed in jurisdictions in which you have some sort of exposure. And I think that that just makes sense. Someone could spend time reading about a jurisdiction online, but that's different from actually practicing in that jurisdiction, of course. So that's number two. Members of the team must be specialized in multiple jurisdictions. Thirdly, they need to be multilingual. So it's one thing reading English translations of tax rules in Indonesia for someone living in Bali, but that's a translation. It makes a whole lot more sense if that person would speak Bahasa Indonesia so that they can really understand and get the stuff that may have been lost in translation. So they should, you know, members of the team should also be multilingual. So that's the third thing. And fourthly, you know, they need to be up to speed with all the changes, especially right now, I think, there's no jurisdiction that is sitting still. Everyone is changing in light of the turmoil that's going on in the world right now. And fifthly, fifthly, you need to get a sense for what the fees are up front. You know, there should be some sort of published fee schedule for us who are re regulated by the American Institute of Certified Public Accountants, AICPA. We need to have a fee schedule available for clients to have a look at. So there are no surprises at the end. So, five points that I think you probably want to consider. They need to be part of a team. They need to be qualified in multiple jurisdictions and, you know, qualified, licensed, insured. Uh, they should be multilingual. They should be proactive and keeping up with the rules. And you should have clarity on the fee structure. So hope that helps. Next question. <laughs> yeah. It, it, there's a there is overlap between international tax and investment migration right so uh citizenship by investment residency by investment uh company formation work permits uh immigration matters because there are tax implications to that as well as uh immigration implications to some 
uh, corporate structures as well, depending on what you're trying to achieve, right? So sometimes you would need to consult a team that is familiar with the investment migration space or international migration space. How do you choose someone in that space? Hmm. To be fair, understand that people, I mean, there are people that are helpful, but again, it's like international tax in the wild west. Most people that you would find online, again, they're not licensed, but very few jurisdictions, relatively few jurisdictions require that someone be licensed, like in Australia, for example. It's a requirement that someone be properly licensed to, to play in that space, but in other jurisdictions, no. So I think where possible, you'd want to avoid brokers because invariably they are just chasing commissions and they're going to pass you on to someone else who's going to do the actual heavy lifting. And you'd want to check on whatever jurisdiction you are interested in. You can probably check with a government body website to see the, whether the, the, the team that you're interfacing with, are they listed on the website? Are they qualified? Have they been licensed or accredited by that jurisdiction? Otherwise, you again, you're dealing with a cowboy who may or may not know what they're doing. And unfortunately, given what we do, we have seen quite a few cases where people have been misled or quite honestly swindled. Uh, we've seen losses in the five, six, and even seven figures. And, you know, many have gone to court. Some people have just disappeared. So it is, it is crazy town out there. But just bear in mind that everyone is running a business and therefore there may or may not be biases. We do offer that advice. We do keep a database of, I think, about 80 to 90 jurisdictions and their investment migration uh, programs, whether they be residency or citizenship. But we have the information and we can advise clients, but we don't actually do the implementation. So in other words, we have no skin in the game. We are not incentivized by commissions. If it is that I, um, I feel as if my team is specialized in, for example, Caribbean passports, then you know when you have a hammer, everything looks like a nail, right? So you would think the solution to everybody's problem is a Caribbean passport or Vanuatu passport or Belize company or Panama Foundation or whatever the case may be. So I would think you just want to work with someone who is not biased in any way or the other, trying to sell you on something that they offer and someone who listens to you and provides something that fits to your situation. We administer a questionnaire with quite a lot of questions just to get to understand your situation, both personal and, and professional corporate and to make recommendations as to what fits you. Now, once we make a recommendation, we would pass you on. If you agree with it, we pass you on to someone who is fully accredited to, to actually carry it out. So this will be someone who's actually on that country's website, someone who's licensed or qualified in that, uh, that jurisdiction, attorneys, accounting firms, or, or whatever. And you know, so there would be, let's say, no misunderstandings. And so I hope that helps. Bottom line, if you find a team that's not trying to sell you or push a prepackaged solution, which they want to force on everyone to chase a commission. So someone with no dog in a race, someone who's completely agnostic and will listen to you and see what fits your unique situation. Hope that helps.
Next question. What is the biggest mistake when it comes to international task structures? Oh, yeah, I was on a call, a Zoom call just before this with uh, uh, some entrepreneurs based in a country in Southeast Asia, I won't say which one, and they have investors as well as team members in a Western jurisdiction, so in North America. So either the US and Canada, or Canada, it doesn't matter which one. So that, that's the way the team is. It's in the entity is incorporated in somewhere in Southeast Asia. Uh, most of the shareholders on the team is in Southeast Asia, but they also have uh, some minority investors and team members in North America as well. And I think a common, it just reminded me of what I think the most common mistake is in international tax structures or international tax planning, the belief that if you incorporate a country, a company in a different jurisdiction, or if you have a bank account in a different jurisdiction, it's not taxable where you are. For most jurisdictions, not all, but for most jurisdictions that we were playing, there is the concept of nexus or permanent establishment. So if even if you have a company incorporated in the BVI, for example, or in Hong Kong, if it is you're actively running that company in Bali, as in you're making key decisions on management and control is in Singapore, management and control is Australia, even though it's incorporated somewhere else, it becomes taxable. It's taxable where the decisions are being made. So somehow, I guess some people and, you know, it's no fault because there's so much misleading information online. Some people believe that the key to tax minimization, the key to tax optimization is simply to pick a, a so-called low tax jurisdiction, incorporate there and continue business as usual. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Once you continue to be in another jurisdiction other than where it's incorporated, it may be taxable where you are if you are a key decision maker. So in the scenario in which I started off discussing where you have a, the, the main part of the team is in Southeast Asia, but you have key decision makers and investors in North America, even though the company is incorporated in Southeast Asia, it, the company may be taxable in North America because there's permanent establishment in, in North America. You have management and control to some extent being exercised in North America. So if you're asking me what is the biggest mistake in international structures, which you obviously have, it's you have to be conscious of where decisions are being made, not just where you've incorporated, not just where you're banking, but where are decisions being made? I think that's number one, the concept called permanent establishment. Number two, the other big mistake that people make is in banking, right? So I think it's relatively, relatively, it's becoming more difficult for non-residents to incorporate companies internationally, generally speaking. But I think banking is a huge challenge. And so people, incorporate they choose a jurisdiction without being conscious of where's the money going to flow because international banking rules for a number of reasons we can get into later on international banking rules are becoming more and more strict as i'm sure many of you are aware so when it, it's kind of like the way i explain it it's like when you go out to dinner you go out to a nice restaurant you go out to dinner so you 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 order your meal your main course being conscious of 
uh, pairing it with the wine, right? Because the wine has to pair with the meal. Similarly, when you incorporate in a jurisdiction, you need to think of the banking. The banking needs to pair with the with the company that you're forming. So you need to keep both in mind. So that's that'll be the second. So to answer your questions, the biggest mistakes, number one, forgetting the concept of permanent establishment. And number two, forgetting that banking is super important and becoming quite difficult. So be conscious of where the money is going to flow. Next question. Do I have any thoughts on the global minimum tax? Any comments on that? Yeah, we did a live stream on that. I think it's two, three weeks ago with uh, an attorney, qualified attorney from the BVI, as well as another tax attorney from who practices out of, uh, at a firm in New York, a mid-level firm, mid-sized firm in the United States based in New York. So, you know, that was, that was an interesting conversation. It is, there's a lot going on, obviously, internationally. Uh, I think the takeaway is that for most people on this call, it probably is not going to affect them because the threshold is 750 million euros. So if your company has a turnover of 750 million euros or more, then you will be subject to the global minimum tax, which would probably exclude most of us on, on, this, on this call, right? So, but, but it is something to look at. This whole idea of being, of being tax-free and not paying taxes anywhere that those days are over the the idea of anonymity and hiding those days are over so you definitely if 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 it is that you may have tax exposure in any jurisdiction and you may be delaying coming forward and becoming completely compliant i always advocate that you should do so as soon as possible because of free uh, information exchanges and all these cross-border tax rules. I think, I mean, if it is that you're not doing anything much, well, okay, maybe you'll be able to fly under the radar, but the people that we deal with, they're on six, seven, and eight figures. So they're not exactly flying under the radar. And if and when you get caught out, it's going to be quite painful. So just make sure that you always get advice. And when you have an international tax structure, I think, you know, we always, I think it's like having a car, right? So you, you drive your car, but it needs to be serviced, right? Uh, because wear and tear, things change. You need to get it checked out every once in a while. Same with your corporate structure. So because the rules change, it may have been fit for, for purpose last year, but it may not be fit for purpose this year. Or it may not be fit for purpose given the changes that are, uh, that are coming in. You know, For example, in the US, lots of changes are expected. So tax planning constant tax planning is a must just keep on top of it keep in touch with your advisors be proactive don't be reactive next question uh, <laughs> do i think that uh the the increases the the, the coming tax increases would mean that people are going to be at least moving to different jurisdictions. I guess that's what you're asking, right? I'm kind of paraphrasing. So there is this perception that, um, that you know, the, the wealthy, they, they go hide in low tax jurisdictions to avoid paying taxes. You know, I, I, 
it's something that the media tends to promote. Uh, lots of anecdotal evidence that this one entrepreneur, this one investor has done X, Y, and Z. So there's, there's, there's a, an academic from, he's either, I think he's from both Stanford and, and Cornell. His name is uh, Dr. Christopher Young. And he's published widely. So what he's done, uh, and I, I use him as, as, as a great resource. So he, he's written a, a book called The Myth of um, Millionaire Task Flight. How Play Still Matches for the Rich. From I think he published it when he was at Stanford. And he also published some findings in the American Sociological Review. This is back in 2015, 2016, I think. And he's also been quoted extensively in the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal. The point is that he went through U.S. tax um, data because the IRS makes tax data available to researchers. Of course, it's anonymized. So you can't see who is who, but you can see tax brackets. So the point is when he looked at, you know, years or decades of tax returns, what the data shows is absolutely the opposite of what the media publicizes, which is the wealthiest someone is the less likely they are to move. And then he did the same thing in conjunction with Forbes, Forbes magazine, because you know Forbes does this list of wealthy people internationally and domestically within the US, but internationally as well. And again, same thing for people on the international rich list. The wealthier, generally speaking, of course the exceptions, but generally speaking what the data says is the wealthier people are, the less likely they are to move. So, but that does not mean that people that uh, higher income earners don't have a plan B. Of course they have a plan B. Of course they have second residencies and citizenships. They have homes in different jurisdictions and yeah, they have a plan B, but they're less likely to move than someone who is a lower income earner. And the reason why is that they just can afford to hire tax advisors who help them with tax planning. So the solution is, uh, isn't necessarily to run to a low tax jurisdiction. The solution is to get good advice. So my response to the quest, to, to your point, yes, there are lots of changes in the tax landscape, obviously, given what's going on right now. But I know that things may have changed recently, as in the last couple of years because of the, the, the crisis that the world is facing. But generally speaking, Wealthy people don't move, they plan. Lower income people, apparently, according to that research moves. So again, you know, I, my ad, advice, if I was to give advice, is before you make any big decisions, talk to a qualified professional. Do like the other wealthy people, right? Take a page out of their book. Plan, plan, plan. All right, next question. Okay, in terms of, right, so in terms of what we're seeing, uh, yes, I'm, I'm seeing the other questions that you guys are putting in, in the chat box below. Uh, but I just need to respond to, to those who submitted their questions and, and their issues or ideas in advance. So please, please bear with me. Okay, someone asked, uh, it, given our portfolio of clients, uh, our higher income earners, where are they going? Which jurisdictions are they going to? 
those who are internationally mobile. So for those who are in Asia or those who are already in Asia or those who want to move to Asia, there is one choice. There's only one choice right now, which is Singapore. Uh, once upon a time, used to be you know caught up between Singapore and Hong Kong, but obviously Hong Kong has had some challenges. So it is definitely Singapore. And you've seen the, the stuff in the press about uh, the the airport is full of private jets. Uh, I think I saw it in some publication earlier this year or last year, because so many other wealthy individuals or families from other parts of Asia, presumably in the midst of the, the crisis of flown to Singapore. And so it's hard to find space to park your jet apparently. So Singapore is a destination of choice, definitely for, and if you wanna be in Asia, if it is you in Europe, I believe it's the UK, Switzerland and Ireland, uh, UK, Switzerland and Ireland, which, and to some extent, Portugal, but more the UK, Switzerland, Ireland, it's, it's, it's my, perception of course this is just anecdotal there's no data the point before i was running on data but this one is just purely anecdotal if it is you're in the middle east it's going to be dubai and despite all the challenges the usa is still as popular as ever we do we did a live stream i think it was last month with a popular immigration attorney a u.s immigration attorney he is based in in California, but he has an office in in Singapore, in KL, in Jakarta, and in Dubai. So he moves between and he has teams there. So you know his he has his finger on the pulse of what's going on, and he's saying demand is higher than ever to get into the U.S. for for wealthier clients. So that that's his perspective. Uh, but generally speaking, in terms of the region that higher net, higher income earners, higher net worth individuals want to be right now, I would say it's Europe uh, for, for a number of reasons, which, uh, you know, I guess with, with the lockdowns and stuff, people feel as if they may have had access to, uh, should they need it, uh, healthcare infrastructure, they have uh, larger pieces of real estate available to them. So even if they have to stay within their homes, they can have a larger home and, and whatever. Uh, yeah, for, I guess for a number of reasons. So in, in Europe, they, they, when we speak to our colleagues who are in the immigration space, so immigration attorneys in, in different parts of Europe, they are, again, they are busier than ever. They are stretched to the max with demand from people all over the world trying to get in. So that's that. <laughs> what's the what's the best passport right now? I again I'm one size can't fit all. I know there are lots if you Google and you, I'm sure you have, you have seen all the lists that are simplistically based on the number of jurisdictions you can get into visa free. Which I mean first of all to some extent, the whole visa regime is upside down right now, because even though on paper, jurisdiction X has access to jurisdiction Y visa free, it has not been working like that for the past couple of years. It, you know, you have to make requests, non-essential travel has been blocked, whatever, whatever. So essentially, even when you're a citizen, the ability to move, to return to your home country has been difficult or unavailable. So I, I think that it's kind of hard right now. We're in a whole new space. But having said that, 
if it is that we're saying that the place that people want to be right now is in Europe, and that's just anecdotal, of course, I'd say Ireland right now is in, is in a great position. Why? Because it's part of the EU, obviously. It's part of Schengen, it's part of the EU, but it's also within that, that common travel area with the UK. So you have, I mean, there's no border check. It is seamless access to the UK, no border checks, seamless access to the rest of the EU. So Ireland has been a popular choice and I think it's our most uh, powerful travel document for those who are in, in the Western world anyway. Any advice someone's asking, is there any advice for nomads who may be US exposed? So I have an acronym that I use, BEST, which means do your best. So the first thing, if you're US exposed, B, bank, bank. So remember to file your FBARs. If you, if you do trigger FBARs, FBARs stand for foreign bank account reports. Uh, it's a form called FinCEN 114. When it comes to international tax rules with the United States and some other countries as well, so I'm not just picking on the US, but when it comes to the US, it's counterintuitive in that the emphasis is on reporting rather than just paying whatever the, the tax bill is. They want you to report. So if it is you didn't pay whatever taxes are due, okay, fine, interest and some penalties, but we're in a low interest rate environment, depending on how much it is, it isn't, it may not necessarily break the bank, right? But if you don't report certain transactions or certain foreign assets, it can be pretty draconian. I remember a case that was reported a few years ago where uh, someone in South Florida, they had, I think they had just about a million dollars in an account in Switzerland. And the IRS deemed that it wasn't reported for three years. Now, the penalty is a maximum of 50% of the unreported balance plus jail term, right? So the IRS deemed this account was reported for three years. So, you know, 50% of a million dollars is 500,000, right? So this person was fined $1.5 million penalty for an account with $1 million in it. So, and, you know, they, they, they're pretty, pretty, pretty aggressive when it comes to reporting foreign assets. So do not forget. So that's B, B for bank. E, estimated taxes. Like when you're in US soil and let's say you have your regular employee, you get paid on a W-2 and is withholding, right? So your payroll team takes money from your salary like every fortnight, every month, and they send that to the IRS. So there's a regular payment going to the, to the IRS. The IRS likes to get its money along the way. They don't like to wait until the end of the year, the following year to get paid. They want to get their money in certain installments. So if it is that you're working internationally, the, and you, you need to figure this out on yourself, so on, on your own. So speak to your tax advisors and make sure that they calculate what your estimated tax payment should be and make them in a timely fashion. Otherwise, is a form 2210 and you have to pay a penalty for that, uh, for underpayment. So make sure you pay in a timely fashion. So that's the E. S stands for state. Under some circumstances, even though you are out of the US for a year or more, 
depending on which state and what's your nexus with that state, whether you're still domiciled with certain states, you may still be subject to income taxes. And I mean, you have really sticky states like Virginia, but also California. So we do speak to clients about keeping up to date with its state tax liabilities or severing ties to their state. Perhaps pick one of the eight states without an income tax, you know, Tennessee, Nevada, Texas, Florida, Alaska, Wyoming, whatever. So if you don't pay attention, you may have state responsibilities and you think I'm outside of the US, what's going to happen? We've had so many clients on returning to the US at some point in time, the state is waiting for them with a huge tax bill. So state and T transfer taxes. So I said, do your best. B-E-S-T, bank, estimated taxes, state, and transfer taxes. Remember that you, when you get into, if you, you're traveling, you're internationally mobile, you get into a relationship with a non-US partner or, or whatever, and you transfer assets to them or you receive a gift from them, that may be reportable as well. So transfer taxes and, and failure to report gifts received or sent could be, up, depending on the threshold that's crossed, it can be up to 30% of the, the value of the unreported gift. So please keep that in mind. Hope that helps. Next question. If I keep moving, can I live tax-free? Now that is, a, that is a hot topic, obviously very contentious. I've seen lots of arguments in certain chat groups. And you know, the, the, what the answer is gonna be, it really depends, but generally speaking, it's of course becoming more and more difficult. If you are to legally do it, it's becoming more difficult because there's this whole principle with international amongst the you know the OECD and the United Nations, but at the international level, there's this whole principle. One of the governing principles is that money should be taxed somewhere. And what you've seen is a number of factors coming into play. So there are fallback rules. So for example, for Canada, the CRA or the ATO in Australia or HMRC in the UK. And certain European countries as well. And the one that pops out a lot for me right now is Italy. We have a client from Italy. And if it is you move to jurisdiction and you, may, you move out of your country, right? And you think, okay, I've severed tax residence. I'm gone, right? I'm out. If it is that you have not settled somewhere else, you're not a bona fide resident of some other country, under some circumstances, there are some fallback rules that may come into play. And you may, even though you're not living in your home jurisdiction, you may be still caught within the tax net of your country of origin. So, you know, we did a live stream last week, I think, with uh, a qualified uh, accountant from, from Toronto, speaking about Canada, uh, we, we've done uh, two, three months ago with uh, two lawyers from Australia on the Australian tax situation. And so we get into some detail in, in those live streams. You can have a look at them on hj.tax. But the point is the takeaway is be wary of fallback rules. And then even if you manage to navigate through that maze, there's always banking as well. We've had so many clients that have been locked out of their home country. Why? They were traveling, they're, they're earning business, on, they're earning money online, or they, I read this one client who's a, 
apparently a popular DJ. And uh, I, I don't listen to um, house music, so I didn't know who he was. So, but my point is that he's been traveling and he's been doing exceptionally well, but he hasn't been paying taxes. So when he tried to go back to his European country of origin, and he tried to transfer money back into the bank that he, I mean, he opened this account as a kid. He's, had, he's been a client all his life. The first thing the bank asked is, where did this money come from? Well, don't you know who I am? Check my website. I'm, you know, I'm somebody, right? Sorry, prove to me. The bank is telling him, prove to me that this money is clean. You have no way of demonstrating, you know, the source of this fund. And it, it varies by bank, but I think what most banks feel most comfortable with is a government document, like a tax return that says that this, that declares what this you know what the nature of this income is capital gains you know rental income you know uh, business income whatever the case may be something that tells the bank what this fund what these funds are and if you're not able to do that we have seen multiple clients get locked out of the european country of origin they cannot transfer money back in because they cannot demonstrate this you know how this money was earned so while you may be able to legally travel around and earn money tax-free at some point in time you may want to transfer it to back to your home or to a so-called first world uh, jurisdiction first world bank and you may have problems so please pay attention to banking rules as well as tax rules hope that helps okay so that's it from that source. So I'm going to pick up a question that I just saw. Okay, I'm scrolling. Okay. So the first one I'm seeing in this chat box is some job offers say remote in, but most of them don't know what that means when I ask if I need to live in the country or if I just need to have tax residency in the country. Hope you're able to help me and them understand this. Okay, I'm not sure what you're saying. Well, if it is that you are traveling internationally as, as a nomad and you get a job offer that allows remote working, uh, I'm not sure, I'm not too sure about your context, but what I would do and what I would advise a client to do is to find out what exactly is the nature of the offer. Is it a contract for service or is it a contract for employment? There are two different things. And of course, it would, it's quite nuanced depending on the jurisdiction, but just generally speaking, a contract for service is different from a contract for employment. If it is, it's a contract for service, then you are still, you're more or less what we would call self-employed. So you'd be responsible for your own tax situation. You'll file your own returns, make sure in whichever jurisdiction, jurisdiction singular or jurisdictions plural, you may be exposed. You, that's your responsibility, not the company's. You need to figure that out. If, however, it is a contract for employment, then that has implications uh not just for you but for the company as well so you'd want to speak to the prospective employer 
about the, the tax situation, particularly around the social charges, because if it's construed that you're an employee, then the company may be liable to social charges in whichever jurisdiction you, depending on where you may be exposed, it's not just the tax situation, but the social charges as, as well. I, I can't comment beyond that because we, we need more specifics, but I, I hope that helps. Uh, scrolling down. I am working freelance just for one company registered in Ireland. Okay, so freelance independent worker, gotcha. I'm from Ireland and moved to Portugal this year. I'm pretty sure I'm still tax resident in Ireland, at least for this year, as I've been living there for over a certain amount of days between this year and last, scrolling down. I've been in Portugal for the last seven months. So does that mean I have to pay tax here in Ireland? Next year, I hope to move around more outside the EU. What's the best way to set that up? Sole trader company and where? Okay. <clears throat> so if it is, first of all, you are working freelance. So you're not an employee. You're an independent contractor. Okay. So if it is, you have been in Portugal for more than 183 days and you said seven months. So presumably that, that crosses the threshold you would be tax resident in Portugal. Now, if it is that you're still, uh, you believe that you're still tax resident in Ireland, I mean, Ireland, just like most European countries, doesn't only have a day's test, but a center of life test. So what you'd need to do um, is probably <clears throat> sit with an advisor. You can, you can reach out to us. So we, we do a live stream. Uh, so we, we have a colleague, as I think I mentioned earlier, Augusto, task lawyer that we work with. And I, I do some of these live streams with, uh, as well as um, a, a, a tax accountant from Dublin that, that we also do live streams and we, uh, we work together on client issues. So what we need to do is understand from an Irish perspective, are you really tax resident? Uh, it sounds as if you're tax resident from a Portugal perspective. So you would, and you've been working in Portugal for more than six months. So you would probably need to file a tax return. You should not be double taxed because obviously you get tax credits plus as a, a tax treaty or whatever, but the devil is in the detail. So if you reach out to us, help at hg.tax, we can uh, have that initial conversation to see whether we understand your situation and therefore we can help you. Uh, scrolling down. So next year, I hope to move around outside of the EU. What's the best way to set up for my tax purposes? For example, set up as a sole trader company and where? So that's the thing, you know, um, there's tax residents when it comes to taxes in Ireland, there's tax residents and there's tax domicile. So e even though, depending on your situation, right, even though you may be physically outside of Ireland, you may still be tax domiciled in Ireland. So if that is the case, then what's, you, you know, in terms of answering your question, where are you tax resident, where do you need to set up, it's going to be Ireland, right? But if in moving around, you trigger a residence somewhere else and you break domicile with Ireland, then it will be in another jurisdiction as well. So it depends on your relationship with Ireland and where you're going to be moving to. So I think that's, that's the, the question to, to be asked and answered. But if you reach out to, to us, I'll put you in touch with 
uh, my colleague in Dublin, and they can take a deeper dive into, into your situation to give a more informed response. Okay, I'm gonna switch over and see whether there are any questions over here. Okay, no, there is not. So in the five minutes left, any more questions? Okay, great. Thank you for joining us. Again, hej.tats, this will be available on our website and on the platforms that I mentioned in a day or so. Feel free to keep checking. But, okay, sorry, I thought you were asking a question. Uh, feel free to join us for another event or feel free to reach out to us at help at hcj.tax if you have any further questions. We were pretty active on social media, so we publish a video every day dealing with international tax issues. Thank you for joining us and we'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Here are four ways we can help you. Number one, sign up for free webinars on U.S. Expat Taxes and International Entrepreneur Taxes at www.htj.tax. Number two, stream premium educational videos at www.htj.tax. Number three, contact us for tax optimization consult over Zoom. Number four, high net worth. We can quote for doing your U.S. international taxes returns. Our books and upcoming events are available at htj.tax. Please subscribe, like, share, and comment below. Email us at help at htj.tax to engage us to advise on international tax or business matters.